Our scripture this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I'll give you a chance to turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles at the end of most rows. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible home as a gift. You're also welcome to to fire up your phone. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word, and we're thankful that you meet us, and you want to be near us, and you don't leave us to our own devices, but you, you communicate with us, and you've given us Holy Scripture that we can listen to and bend our ear to, and we pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us. Jesus, these are words that you uttered hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but they are powerful words, and I pray that they would impact us and challenge us and comfort us this morning, that we would leave this morning as changed people having encountered Jesus our risen Lord, through the Holy Spirit. We pray for the fame of Jesus, for his glory. Amen. Well, we are in a sermon series where we're spending almost a year just simply looking at the life of Jesus. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but it's, it's awesome. Uh, and we are in the first part of the sermon series where we are every week unpacking one of the Beatitudes that Jesus gave. And then In a few weeks, we'll start looking at the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, these really famous sayings and sermons that Jesus gave. And one thing I've been struck by, that's going to sound really simple, and it's kind of like, oh, Drew, you're a pastor and you didn't already get that, but I've been struck by it in in sort of a fresh way. It's going to sound really youth groupy as well. I apologize in advance for that. Um, But as I've studied this week, as I've listen to the sermons over the past few weeks, one thing that I've been struck by is that Jesus is profoundly relevant. Like this week and the week before, as I've looked and watched what's happening in our world, in our country, in our city, and as I've reflected on this beatitude of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called 
sons of God. I'm just so struck, these words that were said 2,000 years ago, how profoundly relevant they are for our day in 2017 in Memphis, Tennessee. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at this beatitude, the seventh beatitude that Jesus gives. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the first question we have to ask is, what is a peacemaker? It sounds pretty simple to us, but this is it's a really unique word that Jesus is using here in the seventh beatitude. It's, it's not a lot, it, it's a word that wasn't used a lot in the first century in the Middle East. Blessed are the peacemakers. What is a peacemaker? So when we think about the concept of peace, there are a few things that, that come to mind, like it's a pretty big word for us, right? The first thing that comes to mind for me, maybe at the most basic level, is the word peace means an absence of conflict, right? Like world peace or peace in my home means that there's little or no conflict around the world or in my home. We also can talk about peace as meaning like a lack of anxiety. Like I had this stressful situation at work, but now I'm at peace about it. I was really anxious about it, but now I'm at peace with this situation. Another thing that comes to mind for me is peace can mean calm or restful, still, quiet, like it was a peaceful day yesterday. My wife and I have a two and a half year old boy named Graham and a three month old baby girl named Jude. So right now we're in a season where it doesn't seem like we're gonna be able to say that for about 16 more years. <laughs> I had a peaceful day yesterday. Nope. Um, instead, what I'm saying is, oh, how I need a peaceful day, right? Calm, quiet, rest. So peace for us is a big word that means a lot of different things. But for Jesus, for Jesus, the word peace is an even bigger word that means even bigger things. So Jesus is living and doing ministry and preaching in the first century, and Jesus, this may come as a surprise to you, not if you've been at Christ City Church the past few weeks, Jesus is a Jew, right? Jesus is a Jew. And so Jesus is um, shaped by and his mind and heart filled with the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. And so for Jesus, the word peace, like what he would have thought of, isn't the English word peace. He would have thought of the Hebrew word does anybody know? Shalom. Shalom. He would have thought of the Hebrew word shalom, which is, a, which is a big word. Shalom means, it does mean the things that we mean when we say peace, like absence of conflict or lack of anxiety or still and quiet and calm, but it means so much more than that as well. Let me just give you a list of some of the things that the word shalom means throughout the Old Testament. If you're a Hebrew nerd, then this is called the lexical range of shalom. Nobody cares? Is it just me? A couple people. The lexical range of the word shalom. Everybody else is like, oh, what am I doing here? Okay, so shalom means peace. It also means, some of these words are so beautiful. It means completeness or safeness, safety. It means health, like physical health, physical wholeness, well-being, 
means satisfaction, contentment with life. It means blessing, you're blessed, shalom. Well-being, it means rightness. Sometimes it's translated prosperity. It can even mean deep, deep personal friendship. Like David and Jonathan, those two characters in the Old Testament, this word shalom is used to describe their relationship as deep, kind of like soul friends, right? It's a beautiful word. Um, perhaps the best picture we have of this word in Scripture and in, in, in the history of the whole world and in, in the story of humanity is the Garden of Eden. Remember the story of the first few pages of Scripture when God creates the garden and God creates people and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and everything just seems right and good and whole and complete. Like Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve walked with God and they talked with God and they knew God. Like there was this right relationship with God as human beings, God's vice regents ruling and reigning all things on God's behalf, surrendering to God as the ultimate king, and from that right relationship, all other things just seemed right and good and whole and blessed and flourishing and restful. It's a beautiful concept, shalom. I don't know that there's an English word that captures like the bigness of this Hebrew word. Listen to how Tim Keller describes this concept of shalom. God created all things to be in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another, just as rightly related physical elements form a cosmos or a tapestry, so rightly related human beings form a community. This interwovenness, interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or harmonious peace. So the idea is that the entire world, like creation and people and society, it's like this beautiful fabric, this beautiful tapestry that God knit together. And when it's knit together, when it's working, when it's flourishing, when it's operating as it should be, there's shalom. But if you turn on the TV for 30 seconds, or you look outside of even your own window, or you have the courage to look inside of yourself for just a few seconds, you have to face the reality that there's a lack of shalom in our world today. Like this tapestry that's supposed to be woven together and flourishing is being torn apart at the seams. So, with that understanding of shalom in our minds and our hearts, more importantly, here's, here's how I would define peacemakers. Peacemakers are reweavers of shalom. Peacemakers are reweavers of shalom. They're the ones who see the tapestry that should be, but they see it being torn apart. And they're spending their lives and their energy and their passion reweaving this torn fabric. So blessed are those who reweave the torn fabric of the world. As I've read this this week, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I found the second, like the promise attached to that blessing, a little bit odd, for they shall be called sons of God. Like in the Beatitudes, a lot of them, like there's a blessing, 
and then there's a promise. And a lot of them make a lot of sense. Like upon first glance, it's like, okay, it's easy to see why Jesus would say that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. All right, that makes sense to me, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, is what Luke records, for they shall be satisfied. Like that makes sense. But blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or sons and daughters or children of God. Like upon first glance, it's like, why? Like what's the connection here? So here's what I've done the past couple weeks. Like I've tried to fill my imagination with this idea of a peacemaker, a blessed person, someone who's flourishing, someone who's reweaving shalom in the world. I've filled my imagination with this person. And I've, like I've lived with these, these characteristics of a peacemaker, a portrait of a peacemaker that I want to paint for you for the next few minutes. I paint for you a portrait of a peacemaker. Not literally, because I can't paint, but verbally. Um, by laying out a few characteristics of a peacemaker, someone who's working to reweave shalom in the world. And as I do so, like, it's made perfect sense to me. Like, oh, now I totally see why this promise is attached to this blessing and why it's so huge and good and encouraging and hopeful. So the first thing in our portrait of a peacemaker is peacemakers live with a holy discontentment that things are not as they should be. Peacemakers live with a holy discontentment that things are not as they should be. Peacemakers look outside of their window, they turn on the news, they travel the world, and they see shalom being ripped apart at the seams, and they have like a visceral gut reaction. They feel it deep within their bones. It moves them. They're moved to tears over some of the sad realities in our world, some of the things that should not be. For example, do any of these things move you? Let me share with you some things that should not be that absolutely move peacemakers. It should not be that around our world there are over 60 million people who are displaced from their homes because of violence, oppression, and persecution. 22 million of them are displaced from their countries. They've had to flee their country. They're what's called refugees because of war, violence, oppression, persecution. It should not be. It should not be that in our country, homes and families are torn apart, and 43% of children in the United States grow up in a home without a dad present. Should not be. It should not be that in our country alone, in the United States, there are over 400,000 children who don't have any family, who are fatherless, who are orphaned. In our country, in Asia, over 60 million fatherless, orphaned children. It should not be. It should not be that in our country, every year there are over 600,000 unborn babies who are killed. It should not be. It should not be in our city 
that 150,000 people, 150,000 people live below the poverty line, that in our city's poorest zip code, 38126, where one of our partner nonprofits, Advanced Memphis Works, worked, works, works, 70%, seven out of 10 of the residents there, adult residents, are unemployed and without work. These things should not be. It should not be that in 2017, in the United States, there's a wicked and depraved and sinful movement of groups who call themselves white supremacists and neo-Nazis who are violently oppressing others and calling for the elevation of one race above all others. These things should not be. But shalom, this tapestry that's supposed to be beautiful and woven together, is being ripped apart at the seams. When I think about a modern-day peacemaker, um, probably for most of us, maybe the, the first person who comes to mind is Martin Luther King Jr. And in 1963, a story you all are probably familiar with, in 1963, MLK was working for justice in Birmingham, and he was put in jail. And in response to his efforts in Birmingham, eight religious leaders, eight religious leaders, put together a public statement about the work of MLK and others who were fighting for justice. And in response to their response, in response to their public statement, MLK penned a letter to them that's become famous, letter from a Birmingham jail. And one of the things that these eight religious leaders were telling MLK and others involved in this movement is, why not wait? Why not wait for a better time to pursue the justice that you so deserve and you so long for? Why not wait? I want to read for you a section. Over the last couple of weeks, I've reread this letter in response to the things that have been happening, things I'm seeing right before my eyes, and it's so powerful and so moving. Um, just Google this letter and spend some time today reading it. It's so profoundly significant and important right now. Let me read for you a section that MLK wrote in response to this idea of wait. Just, just wait for a better time. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging dark of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering, as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and you see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, 
and you see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. Martin Luther King Jr. was so moved by seeing things that should not be that he could not wait, but he was stirred to action. He had a holy discontentment as he looked at the world, as he experienced the world, and thought and felt these things should not be. These things should not be. Which leads us to our second point, because as you all know, MLK and peacemakers like MLK suffer. Peacemakers suffer. There's a lot of, um, like if you read a dozen commentaries, um, trying to figure out what does Jesus mean in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9? What does Jesus mean by the word peacemaker? You're going to see like six or seven different sorts of conclusions. But listen to this. The fact that verse 10 follows verse 9 like makes it seem to me really valid that what we're talking about this morning is maybe what Jesus had in mind when he was talking about peacemakers. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't just like randomly putting together these, these statements, these blessings. There's intentionality. There's a flow here. Blessed are those who are persecuted, Perhaps, Jesus says, because those who are working for peace, those who are reweaving shalom in the world, will suffer. Let me read to you um, a couple verses from Paul in Colossians chapter 1. This is what Paul writes. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The last few words of verse 20 are loaded with irony, a really sad irony, that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, that Jesus comes to reconcile all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, reweaving shalom by the blood of his cross. Do you see the irony there? That peace, like making things as they should be, came through blood. Something that is contradictory to the idea of peace came through blood. And not just blood and the death of Jesus, but it came through the blood of the cross of Christ, this violent tool that was used to um, torture people, to torture people, and in this case, to torture an innocent person making peace by the blood of his cross, loaded with irony. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered in the ultimate way. And so we can only expect that people who follow Jesus in his steps of making peace, of reweaving shalom in the world, will also suffer. Peacemakers suffer. The third thing. Peacemakers appear divisive. Peacemakers appear divisive but they really bring genuine unity. All right, we are, we're 20 minutes into the sermon. Uh, this may be, in fact, there's all sorts of research that says 20 minutes is as long as 
like a human can stay focused on something, which can't be the case because like the office on Netflix is 20 minutes, but most shows on Netflix are like 50 minutes to an hour, right? And they have your attention for hours. But here's, here's what I need from you. Um, this section, you could easily misconstrue. You can misconstrue. Um, you can mishear. You can misunderstand. So what I need from you is, even though we're at 20 minutes, like, hear me here, okay? Like, stay, stay dialed in. Stay with me here because it's really important. Um, it's really important because I think our church um, uniquely is blessed with a lot of peacemakers, um, people who feel holy discontentment and who are moved to action in the world, reweaving shalom. Um, so it's really important for us to understand this characteristic of a peacemaker, that they appear divisive, but they're really bringing genuine unity. They appear divisive because they're calling out injustices in the world. They're calling out sins in the world. They're making people feel uncomfortable. And no one likes that. No one likes being called out. No one likes feeling uncomfortable. Listen to this quote from Thomas Trezina. Thomas Trezina. He says, peacemakers are honored. Peacemakers are honored insofar as they speak about peace as something already victoriously won that we can celebrate as part of our glorious past or as something that will be won in some other world, something out there. They continue to be dishonored insofar as they continue to point out injustice, hypocrisy, and suffering when it gets a little closer to home. They are noble when their actions bring to light problems far away from us, listen to this, but they are an odious nuisance when they point out our own sins. Peacemakers point out sins in our own lives. Peacemakers point out injustices in the world. Peacemakers live in the, make us live in this tension. No one likes being uncomfortable. No one likes being forced to live in this tension. So because of that, they can appear divisive. In fact, Jesus himself was very divisive. Jesus himself was a very religiously and even politically polarizing figure in the first century world. Look at this verse in Matthew chapter 10. This thing that Jesus says that Matthew recorded just a few chapters after Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 10, this is, this is one thing that Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Wow. What in the world is going on there? And what in the world is going on like just a few chapters after? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What in the world is going on when Paul, who like was intimately familiar with the words of Jesus, says that Jesus is the one who ultimately makes peace? That Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker who makes peace by the blood of his cross. What's going on there? Which this is an aside, but... This is how, for me, I know this thing can't be fabricated. Like, I know this thing can't be made up. Because, like, upon first glance, these things seem to be contradictory. Of course, as you dig a little deeper, you see that that's not the case. But if I'm fabricating something, like if I'm just making all of this stuff up, like, I wouldn't write anything that would appear contradictory, even upon first glance. Does that make sense? That's an aside. So what's going on here? What Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 10 and what Jesus says a lot throughout his earthly ministry is that there's a real cost that goes with following Jesus, the cost of discipleship. 
take up your cross and follow me. Like, if you follow me, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. This thing isn't easy. Here in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking about, if you follow me, your families, your families could be torn apart at the seams. This shalom that you think you're experiencing could be torn apart at the seams. Your mom may not like the fact that you're following and devoting your life to me. Your dad may not like it. They may disown you. Your friends may reject you. I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Jesus is divisive. But here's the important caveat that I want you guys to hear. This is very important. Peacemakers may appear divisive, and they may be divisive, but they are not needlessly divisive. Okay? Peacemakers are not needlessly divisive. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're filled with the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about in one of his letters that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will see increasing fruit in your life. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he calls it in Galatians. You'll see things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You will see these things increasingly developing in your life, fruits of the Spirit. And so to be needlessly divisive in ways that are not kind, in ways that are not gentle, in ways that may not be loving, that may not be self-controlled, might not be the sort of peacemaking that Jesus brings. Okay? Like your unself-controlled like rants on Facebook, they're void of the Holy Spirit and the fruit that the Holy Spirit brings. Okay? Like there's a sort of divisiveness that goes with following Jesus. And the followers of Jesus who are making peace, who are reweaving shalom in the world, that they will bring. But it's a divisiveness that's paired with love and gentleness. Intensity is not mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness. Self-control. So peacemakers are divisive, but peacemakers aren't needlessly divisive. And here's what I mean when I say that peacemakers appear divisive, but what they really bring is genuine unity. You see, there's, there's a um, sort of surface-level unity that we exist in the world that we can experience. It's a good thing. And then there's like this deep, like real, genuine, authentic, lasting unity that exists that we can experience. Surface-level unity, um, like it is almost football season. Is anyone excited? couple people at Christ City. A um, couple loud people. Awesome. Uh, so, for those of you who don't know, when football season starts, one thing that will happen, this phenomenon that exists in our country is thousands and thousands and thousands, 80 plus thousand people will gather together and will stream in unity in devotion to the team that they love, right? And I will, like, it's, 
it's a really powerful thing. Have you ever stood with 80,000 people and like been united around something? Like passionate, like, fan, like fanatics, right? I mean, it's a powerful thing and it's a good thing, but I would argue that that's just like kind of this surface level facade of unity, right? Because what happens when you like have to live with one of those people for months, like they become part of your community. You guys have breakfasts weekly and you start to realize like there are things that we disagree about, you know, like we love this team, but everything else in life we disagree about. And then that unity that you thought existed, that you thought was so strong, is gone, right? So there's this surface level unity, and that's, that's fine, and that's good. Like, we all have a need for connection with other people in that way. But, but there's this deeper level of unity as well that can exist even if you and I disagree about something because of the fact that we are both in Christ. Like, this real love that can exist between people. Like, I am committed to you. You are committed to me. Like, we are in Christ. We are in this for the long haul. We love one another. Like, this thing runs deep. Even if we disagree on these sort of surface-level, non-essential things, we can stand together in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is deep and real unity that we can have in Jesus. Let me read for you this quote. It's from a guy. uh, He's known by, this is crazy to me, he's known by um, this name, I don't even know how to say it, Rupertas Meldinius. Does anybody know how to say his first name? It doesn't matter because it's a pseudonym. It's crazy. Like, if you're going to write something and use a fake name, I have no idea why you would use a name like this. His real name is Peter, which is crazy. <laughs> he chose Rupertas. Um, but he's famous for this quote that we talk about a lot at Christ City. You guys have heard it before. It's so important. Um, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. But here's the deal. Here's the thing with that quote. We talk a ton about the first two parts. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. I have tons of conversations. Like, how do we define essentials? How do we define non-essentials? We talk about those two parts of this quote all the time. But I would argue the most important part of the quote, the most important part of this this really important value is the last part. Like everything hinges on the third part, in all things love. Because in love, there's real unity that we can have with one another. Like we can disagree on non-essentials. Essentials are even hard to define. Like we can disagree on some of the essentials, but we can still love one another deeply, right? And so peacemakers, those who are reweaving shalom in the world, they tear at the seam of this fake unity, this facade of unity. They seem divisive, but what they're really bringing is the peace, the unity that we can experience in Jesus. Let me read for you again. This verse is so important that Paul pens in Colossians chapter 1. Maybe by the end of this morning you'll have it memorized. That'd be an amazing thing. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Eden, shalom, is being re-knit, renewed in Jesus. 
Jesus is the king of his kingdom. Jesus, like Jamin said, Jesus is the one bringing renewal. Jesus is the one who is reconciling all things, whether on earth or in heaven. He's reconciling all things to himself and to one another. He's re-knitting. He's bringing Eden back. He's restoring shalom. And there's unity. There's unity as we function as peacemakers underneath the kingship of Jesus in our world. Isn't that beautiful? And so, the last part of this verse for they shall be called sons of God. For they shall be called sons of God. Or sons and daughters or children of God. Now you see, with this portrait of a peacemaker in front of you, why this makes so much sense and is so hopeful and significant. Because for those who feel this sort of holy discontentment and who live with this anger and passion that things aren't as they should be, for the peacemakers among us, it is a huge deal to know that I have a Father who is ultimately bringing renewal. That the King, Jesus, rose from the dead. That death itself could not hold him down. That renewal is bursting forth in the new life of Jesus in the world. Children of God, we have a Father who's bringing this about in our world, though at times it seems unbelievable. At times it seems like we want to cry out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But we know that we have a Father. We know that we're children. We're sons and daughters of a good dad who's bringing this about. For peacemakers who suffer, for MLK, for countless others, how significant is it to know that we are part of a family and we have a brother, Jesus, who knows what it's like to suffer. He himself bore the ultimate weight on our behalf. That he's not distant from those who are brokenhearted or suffering, but he is near and he knows what it's like to suffer. For peacemakers who appear divisive and can live on the fringes of society, how significant is it to know that we're children and we're a part of a new family that is whole and that is unified in love through the work of Jesus? How huge are these things to know that we're children of God so we can be empowered to go in and out into our world with boldness and confidence, working on behalf of and under the banner of our resurrected King Jesus. So, with that in mind, there's a fourth characteristic of peacemakers. And it's this, that peacemakers have an inner quiet, an inner rest, an inner peace. Peacemakers themselves taste, experience, and know peace on the inside because they know that they are and they will be called children of God. Let me close with this prayer by reading for you this short prayer. Um, it's from this old prayer book that was first put together in the 16th century. It's been updated over the ages. It's called the Book of Common Prayer. It's what we use for much of our liturgy. It's what we use for our communion liturgy. Um, it's what the Anglican Church uses around the world for their worship service liturgy. Um, 
And it has all these sorts of beautiful, like personal and private devotionals and prayers that like you can use and interact with. Um, I use it a lot in my personal life. And there's this one prayer that the Book of Common Prayer encourages you, this is, cra- is going to sound crazy to you, um, encourages you to pray every day at noon. Like there are all these prayers that it encourages you to weave throughout your day, and this is the prayer that you're to pray at the noon hour. And this is what it says. Oh God, you will keep, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on you. For in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust, we shall find our strength. O oh God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on you as our Father. For in returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be our strength. Aren't those things that you want in your life? Rest, quietness, trust. Those are things that peacemakers, though they live with holy discontentment, though they suffer, though they appear divisive and can exist on the fringes of society, those are things that they live with and know deep within their souls because they know that God is their Father. They know that it's not in their own strength, but in the strength of their Father, their King Jesus, and the Holy Spirit working in the world. And that's what I pray for you all. That's what I pray for the peacemakers among us. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for blessing the peacemakers. Thank you that there are people who are stirred who experience holy discontentment and are moved to action. And we pray that they would be blessed. I pray that we would know deeply that we are children of God, that we would find rest and contentment, that we would experience shalom within ourselves, wholeness and rightness and blessing and flourishing. That we would find strength and quietness and trust that we would know the strength of our resurrected King and the Holy Spirit being unleashed in the world. So, Lord, that's my prayer that I pray over all of us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.